I'm jumping in with a quick message that I've added to all HR Coffee Time episodes to let you know that my group programme, Inspiring HR, is back. In case you haven't heard of it before, it's an intensive six-week programme for mid and senior level HR and people professionals. So if you're an HR business partner, HR manager, head of HR or HR director, or the people equivalent, so a people business partner, people manager, head of people or people director, and you'd like to build your confidence, your credibility and your impact at work, Inspiring HR could be perfect for you. We get started on Wednesday the 5th of June 2024 when we'll be meeting up over Zoom for two hours every week. The group sessions are a blend of group coaching, training and facilitation. They're supportive, encouraging and practical and each week has a slightly different focus. So in week one, we look at setting yourself up for success. Week two is about boosting your confidence. Week three focuses on being strategic in your role. Week four is all about building key relationships. Week five takes a deep dive into influencing at a senior level. And the final week looks at planning for the future. There's a link with the full details in the show notes for you. Or you can learn more by going to my website, Bright Sky Career Coaching, clicking on services and then clicking on Inspiring HR Group Programme. I would love to have you join us and to get to know you throughout the programme. But if you have any questions about Inspiring HR at all, please feel free to ask by getting in touch through the website and I would be very happy to answer them for you. Welcome to episode nine of the HR Coffee Time podcast. It's wonderful to have you here. If we haven't met before, my name's Faye Wallace. I'm the host of the podcast and I'm also a career coach and outplacement specialist and the founder of Bright Sky Career Coaching. And I've made the HR Coffee Time podcast especially for you to help you have a successful and fulfilling career without having to work yourself into the ground. I'm really excited about today's episode. You get to hear from Danielle Bridge, whose company is called ABC Life Support. It's a company that provides first aid training, whether that's for physical first aid training or mental health first aid training. And in the episode today, Danielle shares masses of advice and information on something that the pandemic has really shone a spotlight on, which of course, you're probably not going to be surprised to hear this, is mental health. So she has just some fantastic ideas on how to support the people in your organization's mental health, but also it's so important to think about your own because I just know how incredibly flat out so many HR people have been over this past year and a half where there have been crazy demands on you. So you really deserve to be taken care of and take care of yourself too. So she shares advice on what to do for yourself as well as what you can really do for the organisation. But before we dive straight into that episode, I just want to remind you that I'm making my Power Up Your LinkedIn Profile course available for you for free for just two weeks. And that's going to be starting from Monday, the 4th of October. And you can sign up to that. Just let me know if you're interested in having access to the course. 
You can always reach me at hello at brightskycareercoaching.co.uk or otherwise you can just sign up for the course directly following this website address, which I'm sorry it's a bit long. I need to figure out a way of shortening it really for the future. It's resources.brightskycareercoaching.co.uk forward slash LinkedIn. The course is a great one for anyone who wants to improve their LinkedIn profile, but it is particularly relevant for you if you are thinking about going for a new role. I'll put the link to sign up to it in the show notes, just to make it a little bit easier so you don't have to remember that really long uh, website address. But now I think it's time to move on to the main part of the show and to meet Danielle. So I'm really excited to have Danielle Bridge on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us, Danielle. No problem. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. And the reason that I asked you is because you're an absolute expert when it comes to mental health. Well, in fact, all elements of health, because you have got your own first day training company. And did you want to tell everybody a little bit about your business and the kind of services that you offer? Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So ABC Life Support is a first aid training company. We deliver physical and mental health first aid training. And that's to organisations or individuals across the UK. Uh, We do quite a lot of education as well around the holistic person-centred approach. So the idea is that we teach people skills to be able to help the whole person. You know, if that's a physical problem or a mental health challenge, it's all around empowering people to make a difference. I'm also the chief exec of uh, of my business, but I'm also the chair of the Cambridge Mental Health Network. And I also do some work directly for Mental Health First Aid England. So, yeah, quite a lot of fingers in, a lot of eyes, but fundamentally all around helping to support people. Mm, It sounds like you're extremely busy. All the time. (laughs) Until I'm not, when I can be found (laughs) kind of watching TV and, and chilling and playing with my kids and stuff. So, yeah, I am pretty busy, but I do definitely make sure I carve out time for myself because I've got to practice what I preach after all. Yeah, absolutely. And talking about what it is that you preach, it would be wonderful to hear a little bit more about that. So there were two main reasons that I asked you to come on the podcast. As you know, it's created especially for HR professionals, so people who are working within the world of HR. And there were two main areas I was really hoping that you would be able to share some of your wisdom around. One is around supporting employees in the workplace, because, of course, we have been through such challenging times with the pandemic. I can't imagine there ever have been in, well, I'm sure in history there has been, obviously, um, but in recent times, such a demand on, yeah, or such attacks on people's mental health. So Mm. the first thing is around really what kind of support can be put in place. And then the second thing, is around how, as HR, everyone can look after themselves. Because I see it all the time that people who work in HR, it's give, give, give. They're there for the people they work with. They'll do anything for them, everything for them to make sure they're okay, but don't necessarily prioritise themselves and their own well-being. And so I think that a lot of the time they can be at a real risk of burnout. So so that's two massive topics to just throw (laughs) at you. So let's start. Which one would be best to start with? (laughs) Let's start with the first one, which is around kind of the importance, I suppose, of HR functions being aware of mental health within their organisations to help support their staff. And it's quite interesting because the pandemic, prior to the pandemic, 
you know, the welfare of staff, the health and safety of staff was always kind of clear for some people. But I don't think it was given the level of importance that it has been given now. I've had more conversations as an organisation around this subject matter since the pandemic than I ever did in the 11 years of running my business up to this point. And I think a lot of it is based upon the fact that health and safety law says look after the health and well-being of your staff. So we have things like safety checks and fire drills and all of these practical things that businesses should and do look after. But mental health was only ever spoken about in the form of stress at work, which actually comes under the health and safety executive guidelines, if you like. So people talked about stress at work, but they didn't ever delve into into too much detail. And people were sometimes off for stress, but it was never discussed. Do you know what I mean? It was almost kind of this thing that we, we talked about, but didn't really know what we were talking about. And so now we've all gone through a global trauma, right? We've all gone through something that is highly traumatic for people. And organisations are now rightly realising that at the heart of every business is their people. And without their people and their people being well, then businesses will fail. And so people are now aware, especially HR functions are aware of the importance that they have to put on the welfare of their staff. And in doing so, there has to be this kind of multifaceted approach. So with physical first aid, which every person who is probably listening to this podcast has been on or heard about, that's one thing when we're looking after the physical welfare of our staff. But what about the mental health support of our staff? What does it mean? What does it look like? So I suppose the onus is on trying to find out what that means, you know. So what does mental health mean? You know, does it mean a problem or mental ill health or mental illness? And we've heard of breakdown and burnout and all of these things. And we've seen lots of depictions of mental ill health um, depicted in the media, which are always, always wrong. Just putting out there. They're always the worst case scenarios and the extremes. It doesn't necessarily have to be that, you know, extreme, but people are struggling and people will struggle long after this pandemic is over and we're released into society because the the fallout of the trauma that people have been living through is going to be felt for a number of years after. So HR functions need to take into consideration the fact that because of the fact that they have people working at the heart of their businesses, they need to look after the mental welfare and the mental well-being of those staff members. But what does that even look like, Faye? Do you know what I mean? Because people go, oh my God, well, that's a really big ask. What, what do I have to do? And I was speaking to somebody this morning at a really, really big wealth management company who have nothing in place, you know, no kind of functionality around mental well-being. They've got health and well-being support, but there's nothing in terms of mental health first aid training or awareness training for staff. So it's about finding out what people have, what organisations have, and ultimately what their staff want and need. So it's about communicating certain things that organisations often have already to hand. So an EAP, for example, an employee assistance programme, lots of organisations buy into one of those services, which are fantastic, absolutely brilliant. Now they offer support and, you know, um, telephone lines and crisis lines and information for X, Y and Z. The problem is that less than 1% of staff ever use an EAP and that's because they believe that these EAPs are on the side of the business if there was a side and they haven't got their best interests at heart they don't want to overindulge their business that's going on at home or personally for them they might tell about they might tell the staff or the people management about what's going on for them they could lose their jobs and there's no communication within organizations about what these functions actually do so 
sometimes with the best intentions, the lack of communication about what these things can provide is the key to getting people to engage. So I think that's the answer to question one. (laughs) Thank you. It's brilliant to have such a comprehensive answer. And if I can just ask you a little bit more around mental health first aiders. So I know that for lots of people listening to this, many of them may already be aware of mental health first aiders. They may even have done the training themselves. But I am also aware that there will be people who may have heard of the concept, but they're not really sure what it is. So could we just take a moment to quickly explain what a mental health first aider is and how Absolutely. you become one? Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, great question. Um, mental health first aiders are on par with physical first aiders within your organisation. And the best way for me to kind of put this across, I suppose, is to is to kind of let's manifest somebody that's working within an organisation who has a stomachache. And they have a stomachache and it's quite painful, so they go home. And nobody in that organisation would ever know that that person's got a stomachache, right? Because they self-manage, they recognise it within themselves and they're well enough to go home. And they might see a doctor, they might take some, you know, a drug or something like that that will help them feel better, a painkiller or whatever. Or they might have a pre-existing medical condition where this stomachache rears its head every now and again, but they know what to do to make that stomachache feel better. But they go home, they sort it out themselves. A physical first aid would never, ever have to get involved in that person's situation. Never. They might never even know that that person's got stomachache because it's self-managed. If that person with a stomachache came to work and was suddenly bent over at the desk in absolute agony, sweating, pale, clammy skin, feeling sick, maybe vomiting, you know, real proper crisis. At that moment, a physical first aider would attend to that person because that's what they're trained to do. And that physical first aider then may recognise that this is something outside of their realms of training. They're not a professional, they're not a paramedic, but they do know that they need to call for the emergency services because this is something without outside of their remit. And it's serious enough at work for that person to be seen by a professional. Now, if we look at that person with a mental health challenge at work, some people will have some difficulty going on for them, either at work or at home, that is causing them some kind of mental health distress, sometimes mental distress. Often times, if that person is triggered or something happens, which causes that to come to the forefront of their mind, that person may go to the toilet. And I always say to organisations, your toilets are the place where people have mental health challenges. They'll go into a cubicle, they'll shut the door, they'll have a cry. They might silently scream or do whatever it is for themselves to feel better. So let's imagine that that person does that, right? They go to the toilet, they have a bit of cry, they have a bit of scream, and they wash their face afterwards and their hands, and then they go back to work. And somebody might never know what's going on for that person because it's self-managed. If that person starts to then come to work and they're behaving in a way that people do not recognise or they're behaving in a way which is erratic and is causing some kind of concern for people within the building, within the office, within the function, then the mental health first aider may be privy to this. Somebody might recognise and say, look, I'm really concerned about that person. They're behaving in a way that we don't recognise and I'm really concerned for their well-being." Then the mental health first aider is then able to go and attend to that. And it's literally they're trained to pick up on signs and symptoms of a crisis within an organisation or within a, you know, a person's life 
And then again, like the fact that they're not the paramedic on the physical first aid stuff, they're not a counselor or, or a psychotherapist on this side, but they do recognize whether or not there is an intervention needed at that point, or they might be able to just sit and listen to them effectively, you know, non-judgmentally listening to them and then be able to potentially signpost them to some support or signpost them to an EAP if it's a non-critical emergency and say, look, guys, we've got an EAP here. They'll be able to help you out with this if you needed it, you know, or actually down the road, we've got this organisation that might be able to help you. And that is literally the function of a mental health first aider. What they're not is a therapist or a psychotherapist or a counsellor. And I think a lot of people get concerned with this weight on their shoulders. You know, they say to me, Danielle, you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a therapist. How am I supposed to help anybody? And again, I go back to the physical first aid side and say, well, you know, if somebody collapses and they stop breathing, you're not a doctor, but you are trained to do CPR, right? So you've got to kind of get into your head about your, your realms and what you are able to do. And let me tell you, if you are a physical first aider and you're on first on the scene and you perform CPR, you are literally the difference between that person living and dying, right? It's a massive responsibility, but we're used to that process. We're used to that profile. And I think we will soon one day be used to the profile of a mental health first aider kind of providing that same emergency uh, support and being comfortable with that. Oh, thank you. You have explained that so well, because I am actually a mental health first aider. <laughs> I did my training last year. And the reason that I did my training is because I have had problems with my mental health in the past, when I very first started work, when I was in my early 20s, I had depression and had to have time off of work while I had some counselling and got better. And absolutely. So what you're saying is I didn't even tell the company that that's what the problem was. I told them that I wasn't very well. And it wasn't really until they kept calling me going, oh, Faye, where's this or where's that? that I thought, I'm going to have to actually tell them because I'm not going to get better if I'm still worrying about work all the time. And of course, I worked in HR, so I was very lucky that the team are incredibly supportive and my boss was great. And actually, I didn't need a huge amount of time off. I felt better quite quickly and went back to work. So I've had that experience and it means that if I'm coaching someone or particularly if I'm providing outplacement support, so that's when people are being made redundant and so I've been brought in to help them prepare for getting their next jobs whether that's really practical stuff like you know CV writing or LinkedIn support or interview coaching. I could spot sometimes people who were presenting in the same way that I had all that time ago you know mm -hmm. I'm in I'm in my 40s now so it's 20 years ago but I think if you have experienced something like that you start to spot the signs in other people and then I had a a terrible period of anxiety in my early 30s because I put myself under way too much pressure. I had a baby. I decided I wanted to do my master's in HR. I started a new job where I was really trying to prove myself and it was just a perfect storm. I don't know how I thought I was going to be able to do all of these things really, really well without keeling over. Yeah, yeah. But to your point, what happened was... <laughs> I just started crying one day and I couldn't stop. So I'd been keeping it all together. And I suddenly thought, oh my gosh, I, I feel really upset. I don't know what's going on. And exactly as you're saying, I went to the loo <laughs> and I started crying. <laughs> it's 
splashed water. So clearly, if people have mental health first aiders and EAP support, they need to be plastering signs all over Absolutely. the loo so that yes. people know, people know right how there. to access them. Yes, that's exactly it. <laughs> yes. But even after like splashing the water on my face, I could not get a grip on myself. And I thought, oh, no, I'm going to have to go and speak to my boss, uh, who was the HR director. So I walked into her room and, you know, she could see straight away something was wrong. And she was, again, wonderful and signposted me to the EAP system, um, who are absolutely brilliant. And touch words, I now uh, haven't had anything like that happen again, because I think that I put a lot less pressure on myself. And I, I can also spot the signs if I am starting to put too much pressure on myself and, and the anxiety is building. And so I'll put things in place to stop that happening. But so it means that with the coaching and with the outplacement, if I see signs of of anxiety or depression in the way that I experience them, that I feel I can I can say, you know, are you OK? And I'll always find out if the company I'm supporting has an EAP scheme because then I can refer them to them and because I am a, a neutral person I am an outside person who's being brought in I think that you're right they'll often trust me when I recommend the EAP because I had one instance where someone was incredibly upset about having been made redundant and I ended up getting his permission to call the HR director and say I'm really really worried about this one particular individual How, you know have you got the details of the EAP scheme? And he said, we send out the details with every single communication. I can't believe he hasn't hasn't accessed it or hasn't even known that we've got one. And I think you're right. So, you know, part of it is, yes, of course, HR needs to be communicating it. But I wonder if there's something there in encouraging everyone else, as well as external bodies to communicate it. But it was really after my encounter with that person who I just mentioned, who was so upset I couldn't stop thinking about it afterwards. And I was really worrying because I think my my biggest fear in the line of work that I have is suicide. Yeah. Because no one likes to talk about this at no. all. But people who are made redundant, it's not the majority of people, of course, it's a minority. Um, yes, it can happen. And I know of it happening. You know, there are high profile cases in the news where it's happened, but also... I mean, I feel extremely lucky and relieved that I haven't been in that situation where it has happened to any organisation that I've supported. But it really made me think I want to be trained. I don't want to just be relying on instincts yeah. and thinking, oh, how would I have liked someone to talk to me when I was depressed or anxious? So mm. that's really what made me sign up to do the first data training, because I thought I need to know about other signs that I'm unaware of because I haven't experienced them personally. And I also need to know what I should be doing because... I thought, well, taking a common sense approach, you know, I'm pointing them in the direction of EAP. I'm speaking to the HR team about it. Um, but is there more I can be doing? And actually, I am so pleased that I did that training because it really opens my eyes to the wealth of resources and support that there is out there that I can signpost people to if I need to. That's exactly it. And you've just hit the nail on the head there. There is a wealth of information and resources that we can signpost people to. I think what sometimes happens within the realms of mental health is that people's experience can sometimes mar 
that capacity to understand that there is a lot that they can do by way of perhaps a relative who has been on a waiting list for six months and therefore that's that's the only frame of reference they have so it's like well don't bother going on a waiting list because it takes six months you know so that kind of negative attitude around what supports are available and I'm all around empowering us as individuals and communities and society to be able to do as much as we can on the front line before they perhaps need the support for mental health professional and there is a lot that we can do. You also mentioned earlier on which is quite fascinating to me around kind of the communication of this stuff. EAPs are offered primarily within big organisations as a perk of the job. But what's not offered is the communication around what that looks like, a real breakdown and also a user testimony. You know, I say user testimonies are fantastic because what they do is stop it from being something that senior leadership and HR functions dole out to staff rather than something that's been used by staff, which people can then build up a trust for. And it can be as literal as getting a testimony and, and it could be anonymous right getting a testimonial from somebody who's used it to explain how they felt about using it and what they got from it and it's you know they could be nameless if they wish but to communicate these things on the intranet or on like you said on posters putting them behind the back of the toilet doors you know we've got a really good AAP and I used it when I was getting divorced or I used it for something else that's going on in my life and actually it was a real lifeline for me but if we can hear these and we have them dripped in regularly to our kind of our consciousness then when it needs to be used by somebody perhaps that level of information will build up a trust that they've now got because it's not something that is abstract it's something that's kind of within their you know within their reach and you also mentioned there about suicide and I spoke to a client this morning who was talking about suicide and I said to her about having a and I've written it down so I'm going to, I'm going to read it here a suicide disclosure process which is effectively what to do if somebody at work says that they're going or they're thinking of taking their life for whatever reason. And at the moment, if people are talking about suicide, then there is sheer panic and not knowing what to do and not knowing what to say and being worried about getting it wrong and being fearful of these conversations. And mental health first aid helps you to understand and navigate these, these questions and navigate this subject with dignity and with an understanding, which brings it from this very pressured, really difficult kind of anxiety inducing state when we talk about it to somewhere which is accessible by everybody where we have a conversation around something that's difficult to talk about but that's now within my reach and it is imperative that people have this training to be able to help make a difference and again you know going back to the whole physical first aid if people didn't know CPR then nobody would have any chance if it was out of hospital cardiac arrest no one would because we wouldn't know what to do. We wouldn't know that doing that CPR is, is keeping the brain oxygenated so that if there is a positive outcome, somebody has brain function. If we didn't have mental health first aiders who were able to intervene when somebody's in a really, really difficult place, then we wouldn't have people perhaps having those conversations around suicide and being listened to and therefore accessing a support where they change their mind and they don't go through with that, right? So it is that important that we have these conversations because they are literally life-saving. It's really interesting hearing you saying that because I haven't heard about that before. Did you say a suicide disclosure process? Yeah. So if somebody at work talks about it, and this is not this is not something I've ever seen. It's something that I've been pushing with my clients 
to have a have a think about, right? And it's in the same way. I mean, the way I spoke to my client this morning is if we all know that if the fire alarm goes off in our organisations, the risk of death for a real fire is quite high. And therefore, we know that we need to grab, not grab our bags. We need to go out the door, shut the doors behind us, check the toilets, go downstairs and meet in a mutually acceptable area outside of the building because that's been drilled into us for years. And so we naturally know what to do in every organisation we go across. It's the same process. What do we do if somebody discloses that they wish to take their life at work? What happens? And this has happened to so many organisations that I've worked for. They've said, you know, somebody said that they were going to, they were thinking of taking their life. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, what do we do? What is panic, sheer panic. You know, they don't know who to call. Should we call the police? Um, should we ring their mum or dad? Or should we ring? It's this not knowing and having to firefight in the moment. Preparation is always key. If we understand that there is something that, can be done if somebody discloses the idea of taking their life that is bespoke to my organization in terms of signposting or getting somebody next of kin involved or understanding there is a crisis center around the corner from where you work or understanding there's a telephone number that we can ring in this moment with this person in the boardroom or in the toilet or whatever it may or may not be it gives people the confidence at the time of the emergency because retrospectively it's it's gone right retrospectively we always have these conversations but doing the preparation up front and having these difficult conversations but have coming out with a process around it can be really really beneficial I can imagine it be incredibly beneficial you've really got me thinking now I think <laughs> after we finish recording the podcast I'm going to have to ask you about it even more yeah. if, um, maybe there's an article in there somewhere I think it sounds such a sensible and helpful idea and then other sensible and helpful ideas what I have heard the HR community talking about is okay so I know what mental health first aider does we've arranged some training we've trained up some people now what do we do do we just leave them to get on with it <laughs> um, oh 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 Faye, Faye, Faye. right sorry <laughs> Now, there is a reason why I'm laughing like this, because and I don't know whether or not it's actually I don't think it's I don't think it's even beneficial for my business because I sell training. Right. But organizations that contact me immediately, we go through what it is that they want. And they say, right, we've heard about this mental health first aid stuff and we'd like to get some of our first aiders, mental health first aid trained. It's like, okay, so your physical first aiders, you wish to get mental health first aid trained. They're like, yeah, because we think it makes sense. I'm like, okay, well, that may or may not be the right thing to do, but we'll get to that point. The first step is, what's your strategy? And they say, sorry? <laughs> so what's your strategy? What is the outcome of you doing this piece of work around mental health and well-being and training? And they say, well, because um, we heard that it was quite good. <laughs> ah, okay. So the fallout of going on training, this kind of training, is that you arm. And, I, and you know what? Actually, I, kind of, I did a training course yesterday. It's my first one back face-to-face -face yesterday. Uh, it was the second day of a two-day course. And I absolutely loved it. It was my happy space. And I'm totally, totally happy to be back. But the first day when I introduced everybody and we were all doing the icebreaker and talking about, you know, why they're here, the majority of the, of the delegates were saying, well, my company says I've got to be here. You know, they're looking at mental first aid, so I've come along. And I said to them, this isn't it. And they're like, oh, I'm on the wrong course. I said, no, no, no. Mental health first aid training is brilliant. It's amazing. But 
without an infrastructure for this to sit underneath or within, it's useless. Because what happens is you go back to your company with this qualification. You go, right, I'm into health first aid. And they go, excellent. Crack on with that. <laughs> then nothing happens. It's like tumbleweed because of all of the things we spoke about earlier. Nobody knows what you do. Nobody knows why, how they're going to use you. Nobody knows who's responsible for what. People think that you think you're a counsellor and they are definitely not interested in telling you about their deepest, darkest secrets. Or why would they do that work? So this person who has had two days of the most awesome of information and a wealth of knowledge go back and are underutilised and then tumbleweed sets in. And they're like, well, man, what did I bother doing that for? Nobody's, you know, it doesn't exist. Nobody's interested. So it's really about finding out what your end goals are why are you taking part in this training what is the what's the reasons behind it how are you looking to support your staff what other things can you do to support the well-being and the you know the health and well-being piece and the mental health piece what does your strategy look like how many first aiders do you need are they the right first aiders for you all right. And that's quite interesting because we now go back to those physical first aiders, right? Those physical first aiders within an organization might not be the right people to pick up on the mental health side of the business. And that is for a number of reasons. It could be a type of manner. It could be a trust thing within an organization. So, for example, and I know this is for HR, we often say that HR functions within an organization might not be the right people to be mental health first status because HR, rightly or wrongly, sometimes has a reputation of being on the side of the business, not necessarily on the side of the people. And that's not that's not my thoughts. That's you know from the feedback that we've heard. And so sometimes HR personnel might not be the best people to become mental health first aider, certainly have a buy-in for it. Sometimes the mental health first aider might have unresolved trauma themselves and utilised this position as almost a cathartic piece for themselves, which can be really dangerous because if they're then triggered by anything, then that means that they have the capacity to become unwell themselves, especially if it's unresolved. So it isn't as simple as just getting mental health first aiders in. It takes an awful lot of work and effort and understanding and buy-in, so much so that we ask people to conduct interviews for their mental health first aiders to find out whether or not they're the right people, what are their motivations to becoming mental health first, aid, first aiders. And even that person who is really passionate because they've got a lived experience of mental ill health they've, or they've got family members who've got, you know, serious mental illness and they've been around this subject for so long, you know, they've driven, they're passionate. They might not be the best people for that role. However, they would be the best champions to start to communicate the need for this within a business. So it really is a matter of sitting down and doing the work around what the mental health first aid function should look like within every company before we embark on this training. I'm almost speechless because there are so many things that you've mentioned there that I hadn't properly considered, which is why it's so great to have you on here uh, sharing all this fabulous knowledge. But if I think of the training that I did, actually, there were quite a few people who had experienced terrible but really challenging mental health challenges or had family members who had gone through really, really tough times with their mental health. And Yes, it hadn't really occurred to me this idea of they could potentially be champions of the programme. Well, as well as or instead of being the mental health first aiders. But I love this idea of interviewing 
so that you can understand people's motivations and gather the commitments and suitability as well. And then moving on from that, I'm really curious as to whether you have worked with any organisations where you think, oh, they're doing a brilliant job of embedding all of that learning you know embedding those mental health mental health why can't I say the word (laughs) mental health first aiders properly (laughs) yeah and effectively have you got anything that you could share with us where you've seen organizations do this well yeah I have and actually it's probably the the company I I, I spoke to this morning which am I allowed to say the name of the company is that okay I don't know it's up to them so maybe not (laughs) not. so I I was speaking to a client this morning and they're starting from the beginning and it's actually a business that is very very well established in this country very very well established and they're a wealth management organization and they are international so they are you know UK America all over the world but they do not have a mental health and well-being function and that is just alien to me I'm like you're huge but there's nothing there it doesn't surprise me I'm a bit shocked by it. it doesn't surprise me and it's only after this pandemic but like I said earlier that people are realizing the importance of having this function but they're starting from the very beginning and it's beautiful to see and it's very exciting to be able to work with them because there's no bad habits or historic issues to get over they are starting from scratch and they've, they've already got senior leadership buy-in. They, they definitely, definitely want to do this. But they're starting from the beginning. And what they've done is starting to have a look at this very fine line between mental health and intersectionality. And that's probably another course, another call. But um, intersectionality, i.e. being representing every single demographic of society within your organisation and for them to have a voice by having an employee representation group, which you might know as, as ERGs. And as part of those ERGs, they're now going to be looking at receiving buy-in from each of those as part of an overall well-being and mental health function, which is brilliant because that way you've got quite a lot of uh, demographics and, and, and a wide range of reach within your company to be able to help to navigate and help to form what this looks like. They're also thinking about having uh, questionnaires go out to people to find out where the staff currently, where they stand on terms of where they currently are with their thought processes around their own support within the organisation. They've got somebody from marketing on board who is going to be in charge of communicating what they're trying to do to everybody throughout the year, not just Mental Health Awareness Week or, you know, World Suicide Day or whatever it may or may not be. But across the year, drip feeding this stuff as part of an overall function where people work. This is the stuff that they need to be aware of. And they're doing it from a position of, right, we're starting fresh. What can we do? And that's the kind of company that I love working with because they're open to everything and they're open to these stages and the, you know, the baby steps to make sure that they get it right. And by doing that, they will definitely embed this culture of positivity and seriousness around something that has ramifications if not done well. So that's the kind of company I, I love working with. Some companies literally will do it because it's the new kid on the block, you know, or, oh, we have heard about it, so we'll go and get some. And no, we haven't got a strategy, but at least we've got some mental health first aiders. And something is always better than nothing. So therefore, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that's not necessarily uh, an an option for people, but it's always better to understand that 
our mental health first aiders are best placed within a function that sits for them and with them rather than them trying to navigate this really difficult field on their own. Mm, that's such a good point. I I passionately believe in the power of consulting with and learning from and speaking to everyone that you're working with and getting their ideas feeding in. In fact, one of my coaching clients, she's a career change coaching client. She worked for um, quite a famous organisation and she was part of, they had an employee group that were encouraged to form. People could volunteer all around well-being and mental health. And amongst them, they came up with all these fantastic initiatives. And when she left the company, she said she was really touched by the number of people who got in touch with her to say what an impact the work that she had done within that group had had on them and Mm. there's just something so powerful in it because again I think well I used to be guilty of this when I worked in HR is I used to think I need to have all the answers (laughs) we need to do everything perfectly and do it right for everyone without necessarily realizing that actually you don't need to have all the answers. You don't need to be doing it all yourself, especially when you've got an incredibly busy workload. And actually, it's going to be much better <laughs> if you get input from everyone else and perhaps, you know, hand over some of that responsibility to other people. So it's, um, oh, it's wonderful to hear about this organisation. Oh, yeah, I'm very, very excited. And, you know, you just mentioned something there as well. When sometimes when organisations especially senior leadership teams and HR functions have the best intentions and it is the best intentions. But because of the fact that there is no potential lived experience or understanding of living within that sector, be that mental health challenges or, you know, the LGBTQ plus A society or the black and ethnic minority group that people have within their organisations and all these other, you know, employee representation groups, things being done for these people without their input will never <laughs> be best placed because it has to come from a position of of lived and being experienced. So having buy-in from these groups is absolutely key because then the ideas come from the people it serves. And I think sometimes when you know, when you're told, actually, guys, you know, we've decided every Friday uh, because of the mental health well-being, we're going to have an open bar you know within the company we're taking that's going to be our thing for you you know and you'll get people that go well I don't drink and actually this is pretty useless because it's not getting to the root of any of the issues that I live with while I'm coming to the organization but the organization's thought it's a fantastic idea right so it has to come from the bottom up if we go from the bottom up and we meet in the middle from the bottom from the top down in terms of why I'm doing this, why it's so important that I'm here and we're hearing you and we're listening to you and we're there for you and we're going to meet you halfway. And then everybody who it serves has a part to play in that. You meet somewhere in the middle and it's a beautiful space. So you do have to get buy-in from the top, but you also have to work from the bottom up. So yeah, like I said, middle middle ground, beautiful space. Now, I could carry on quizzing you about this for absolutely ages, but I'm suddenly <laughs> conscious of time and also the fact I said there was a second main question (laughs) which was how HR can support themselves and I'd been thinking about this anyway but there was something I heard you say on a different podcast that really struck a chord with me and I thought I have to make sure I ask you about this and you had recommended about everyone having their own I can't remember what the exact wording was mental health toolbox Mm, I think you called it 
Yeah. So, yeah, the mental health toolbox, yes. Um, and it's lovely because I remember, you know, you said about the second question being how do HR people support themselves of at risk of burnout? And that question is up from an individual point of view, because anybody that looks after anybody, including themselves, you know, sometimes just themselves, has to have something in place to be able to recognise when we as individuals need um, time out. And so the toolbox is all around what sorts of things do we need in order to stay well? And earlier on, you talked about not not telling your organisation about the fact that um, you were mentally unwell because of fear of what you know what ramifications could be. It's shocking for some people to hear that ninety percent of people who are off of work for mental health challenges cite a different reason. Ninety percent of people. So you're not on your own there because of stigma, etc. We understand that. So before we get to the point where we need to have time off, what do we need? What do what can we ask for? What can we have individually for ourselves to, to be able to stay safe and to, to, to stay well? And that could be different for everybody. But the first key is awareness and recognition of because we can't put things into practice unless we recognize that we're in that space. So there were probably things for you, Faye, before you broke down in the toilets that day where you cried your eyes out. There were probably markers where you could recognise certain things within yourself before you got there. But you were too far gone. You were too far on this train to stop, you know, because it's like, oh, well, if I do that, then that's going to happen. If I do that, that's going to happen. So we keep going until they get to the point where we have no control over that stoppage. And what we want to people to try and do is to recognise that within themselves first and then put things into place that could stop that from happening. I'm thinking now, because of the, the pandemic, that we are now going to be open towards individual needs as we live our lives. So, you know, the fact that people aren't having to, to go into work and to commute as much as they were, which some people found really stressful. You know, the fact that they don't maybe not have to do that five days a week. Now they can do that maybe once or twice, or they can do their, their meetings online, or the fact that they wanted to do their meetings at the park, going for a walk rather than in, around the boardroom. So it's about these kind of things that we can all do individually and have the confidence to be able to speak about our wants and our needs, which I think will play a huge part in how we navigate our these waters as we exit you know these these strange times that we're in but the toolbox is primarily something or things within your own reach that you can use to keep yourself well and again there is no list of what that looks like for me it's SWAT on tv I love a bit of SWAT <laughs> I'm watching SWAT at the moment it's terrible I'm addicted and popcorn or maybe a bit of Tony's chocolate only every now and again or maybe it's dancing before a meeting in my office or I don't know whatever it may may or may not be but these are the things that keep me well and keep me on an even keel to get on with the life that I that I live oh fabulous well again I wish I could ask you even more but <laughs> I am really conscious of time now and I just wanted to say a huge thank you for everything you've shared it has been fantastic talking to you and I have forgotten to pre-warn you that I'm going to ask you this question but I'm trying out asking all my guests for their top book recommendation so a, a non-fiction one a non-fiction okay um I'm just looking See, I wanted to, maybe that's a bit too heavy, actually. Um, yeah, that's probably a little bit too too heavy. I've read a book called The Daily Stoic, and it is one of the most powerful books I've ever read. And I 
have read it a few times. It's something that we read annually, my husband and I, because there's one page per day, 365 quotes, I think it is. I think it's 66 quotes for a leap year. But um, it's a daily quote that inspires our stoic philosophy that kind of makes us think about the life that we live and our space within it and it's profound and it's interesting and it's grounding for me I think sometimes we can kind of get away with ourselves right but this book really does bring it down um, to an accessible space and my favorite thing actually which is really fascinating uh, that's come out of that reading of that book is this stoic philosophy of it that it is what it is and I find that sentence to be quite grounding and what it basically means is that it's not the things that happen to us but the beliefs that we put around them that make the difference. And I live by that because it's been a tough year. And every time I throw something at this sentence, it gives me something to work on rather than dealing with the issue itself. So it is what it is, right? That's, yeah, so The Daily Stoic. I can't remember who's written it, but it's a fantastic book and really grounding for us. Oh, well, I'll look it up and I'll link to it in the show notes and I'm looking forward to reading that myself. That sounds like a brilliant recommendation. Thanks so much. And then just before we say a final goodbye, it would be fab if for anyone listening to this, if they think, oh, I really want to get in touch with Danielle or find out more about her business, what are the best ways of them doing that? Excellent. Yes. So we've got a website. It's www.abclivesupport.co.uk. I can be found on all of the socials, Danielle Bridge, um, at Twitter and um, Instagram, although I am on a month and a half off of Instagram at the moment, but you can find me on LinkedIn. And also we've just released our own podcast, which is the It Is What It Is podcast. So thank you so much. Yes, I listened to that very first episode this week and thought it was brilliant. It was, um, and I had had no idea you were even starting a podcast podcast when I stumbled across it so it was a nice surprise oh thank you very much it was I think it was my my lockdown project <laughs> which has now got legs so yeah <laughs> fantastic oh well thank you so much <laughs> take care bye Danielle I really hope that you found today's episode helpful and that there are tips that you're going to be able to take away from it and put into action. If you have already rated and reviewed the show for me, a huge, huge, huge thank you. I really do appreciate it. It makes such a difference, especially on Apple Podcasts, because the more ratings and reviews they see, the more it encourages Apple to show the podcast to people who haven't heard of it before. If you haven't rated and reviewed it and you have been enjoying it, I would love it if you would be so kind as to rate and review it for me. And please do let me know if you do do that so that I can say a proper thank you.